compatible. compatible. Yeah. Okay, so when I go on, I just press Sunday broadcast. Okay. All right. Good morning again, everybody. Let's begin by praying together. Okay. I do want to remind everybody that you've got it. This time also to please mute your microphone, or if that's not possible, if you could um, keep not right, refrain from talking, that would be fantastic. <clears throat> All right. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, well, I've touched that. We no, thank you have to do anything really. See, blessing us Live. with your Son, we'll Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you rescued us from, from sin and from death, the blood of your son. And we thank you that you raised him from the dead. We thank you that salvation is by grace and through faith. Hang on a minute. We also thank you, Father, for everything that you did for us. Got that locked. Okay, we're going to unlock it. And we ask this morning, Father, for the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit as we... As we study the word of God together in fellowship and prayer. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to remind people once again who are on Skype to please mute your microphone so that it's not a distraction to people who are listening. Including me. It's fully compatible, so it shouldn't. Hey, Lisa. So you can plan all right. John chapter 7, verse 25. Listening to Jesus, we're wondering about how you're going to have a Especially uh, that transitions into that subject of next week. Let's begin by reading the passage. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. Whatever the Christ, whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. whom You do not know. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him. Yet no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has. Will he? Jesus has now finished his teaching that we were looking at last week on the law law and the Sabbath. And remember, at the end, he talked about judging with a righteous judgment. 
and how how the, the, the understanding of the Sabbath had been corrupted and it turned into a set of laws and restrictions. And we went back and looked at the original meaning of the Sabbath was freedom and rest. Remember that? So that's where we ended up last week. And now that's that he's done with that. He will he will come back to teaching. Um, he remains in the temple. He was in the temple when we saw him last. He'll stay there. And uh, he'll resume teaching, as we learn. If you look at verse 28, you'll see. Look at verse 28. Then Jesus cried out in the temple. He's still there, teaching again and saying, you both know me and know where I am from. But now, today, we're going to hear from the audience. It's time for them, or actually John, to turn to them and record what they were saying and, and to a certain extent, what they were thinking. They weren't of the same mind. They had different views points about Jesus. We've seen this already. We've seen that there's always a division, a split among the people that Jesus is teaching to, ministering to. We'll see that today as well. For the most part, their reactions are negative. For the most part. Now, last week, we saw that when he first began to teach, they challenged his authority. Remember that? They're challenging his authority. He was speaking in the temple. He was he had the great command of the scriptures. Nevertheless, they, they were challenging his right to teach. Who is this one that he would be up here teaching? We haven't seen him. We don't think he's been trained by any of the rabbis. How did he get all this knowledge? Remember that. So that was the, the authority to teach in the temple. They certainly questioned that. But then again, they also tested and questioned the authority of his claim to heal on the Sabbath. Those were both issues of authority. Today, however, it's not going to be about his authority. Rather, it's going to be about his identity. Not his authority to teach or to heal, but actually who he is. And in, and in brief, the question is this. Could he be the Messiah? Could he be the Messiah? And again, there are, the crowd was divided. There were actually three different groups of people, as we're going to see, surrounding this question. John, again, records the reactions of three separate groups of people to this question. Could he be the Messiah? The first group is skeptical about him. And I think that's the camp that most people are in um, today as well as back then. They're skeptical. They don't want to commit one way or the other. They, they, they have their doubts. They kind of, they're, they're leaning towards he's not who he says he is, but they're willing to look at the evidence. That's the first group. Second group, not not at all like that. The second group has already made up their mind. They're indignant at him. They're hateful. They want to they want to capture him. They want to kill him. So they're, they're they're very hostile to the Lord. So you have skeptical indifference, hostility. That's the second group. And thank God for the third group because the third group ends up believing in him. So again, three very different groups of people, very different reactions to the identity of the Lord. And it's interesting today that the Lord doesn't bring this subject up. The people do. Okay, we'll see that. But the first group, you know, wonders if he could be the Messiah, but then starts to accumulate evidence in their mind. Well, he can't be really because of this and that. Second group already made up their mind. They're going to kill him if they get a chance. Third group end up believing in him. And it's interesting. They all see the same evidence. They all, they, all, they all have heard messages from him. They all have either seen or made aware of the miracles that he performed. And yet you have these three very different 
reactions to all of that. And then, and, and that is a, 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 actually a, a verdict on humanity, fallen humanity, that that could occur. In other words, if, if, it, if people actually gave him an honest hearing, if, they, if these Jewish people had known their Old Testament, had stayed in its teachings, they would have recognized who he is, and there would have been no difference of opinion. Everybody would have, would have ended up believing in him because he is who he says he is, and, it, and it's backed up by the scriptures. But that didn't happen for, 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 for at least two important reasons. One, they didn't know their scriptures. And two, there's something about human nature that when it's energized, as it were, by the flesh and by the influence of, 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 of fallen angels, of demons, then they're going to pin in a, in a really hostile direction against him. Right? That's, it's, it's, a, uh, it's not an, a natural thing. Um, uh, Jesus will say at the end, um, they hated me without a cause. And there's always a group like that, sometimes a big group, who are just negative, completely negative about the Lord. And, and again, that's just an indictment of human nature. Thank God they're the third group that, that end up believing in him. Back in John 7, 25. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? You can see a distance here from the Lord. And in a way, a distance from the people that want to kill him in the language that they use. Is this not the man? Very generic. You know, actually a, a little sarcastic even. Is this not the man that they are seeking to kill? They don't even identify the people. Now, there's a good reason for the, for the latter. They were afraid of those people. So remember, they, they talked in hushed tones about the, about the Lord. And that was because of the leadership. Remember. The Pharisees, the, the high priests, they'd already made up their mind that they were going to kill him. And, and the people of Jerusalem, of all the people that gathered, now remember the context is the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. That was the, probably the most well-attended, remember, of the three major feasts of the Jews. And uh, because of that, they came from all kinds of different places, not just Jerusalem, not even just Judea, right, but beyond. Right. We know Galilee because that's where Jesus was at the time the feast started. And his brothers came down as among the group of pilgrims that came from Galilee. But in addition to that, there were also Jews that were outside of the borders of, 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 of the former Israel, the former kingdom of David. They were everywhere. They had been dispersed. The, the fancy word for that is diaspora. I don't exactly know where that word came from, but it basically means Jews who were outside of the promised land. They were other places. They were, you know, geographically, they were to the north. They were to the east. Primarily then, they were in the north and east. Later on, they would then be, they would go to the west. In other words, they would be in the road dispersed in the Roman Empire. And some of them were at that time, too, in the Western Roman Empire. In any event, you have a lot of people, and they're from different places. Here, John is focused on the people of Jerusalem. And not all of them, right? Some of them. So, in other words, the, there's a group here, they're from Jerusalem, and some of them are just skeptical about him. They have a sort of distance from him. Other people in Jerusalem, remember now, the, the, the high priests, the Pharisees, they're from Jerusalem too. And there was, a, there was a block of people that were siding with them. So there's others in Jerusalem, but there's these people. And again, just to, just to 
emphasize this point, they're from Jerusalem. They're from the capital. They've known what was going on for the most part. If they didn't observe things directly, other people did. I mean, this was a big deal. Even though Jesus didn't present himself as the Messiah like his brothers had hoped and some of his followers had hoped, nevertheless, it was a, it was a major issue in the city of Jerusalem at that time. It was on the minds of a lot of people because of the attitude of the rulers towards Jesus. So, again, it's people from Jerusalem. They knew the most, if you think about it, because the events that occurred there were right in their city. And then, there were, again, there were, that's an opposition to the Jews in Galilee. Jews in Galilee, remember, had a very different experience of the Lord, for the most part, really positive. I mean, think about the feeding of the 5,000, for example. Um, many So far, many, many, most of the miracles that had been recorded by John so far were in Galilee. Okay. So they had that, but they didn't know all of the scheming that was going on in Jerusalem. And certainly those that were outside of the, the promised land entirely knew the least about what was going on in this, this conflict between the leaders and Jesus. All right. So in other words, the people who lived in Jerusalem were the most likely to have known that the priests and Pharisees had already decided to kill Jesus. That's why they say what they say at the end of verse 25. Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? They knew that, that, that there was a man that the Pharisees wanted to kill. They really knew it was him. But again, and the caution that they have here because of the fact they didn't want to they didn't want to get on the wrong side of the leadership. Not only that, but they may also and many of them, I'm sure, did recall Jesus earlier miracles that he that he performed in Jerusalem. And you see, you can understand why the people would be of, of different minds about him, that they might be confused about him, that they may be they may not want to commit one way or the other. On the one hand, the miracles that he performed. On the other hand, this that the establishment, the so-called knowledgeable people, those who knew the law, the priests who did the, the uh, sacrifices, the other leadership, they were all against him. And, you, and, and, it, and people had to wonder why. You know, so that that was it was a really difficult thing for them to sort out. So the miracles that he performed, even in Jerusalem, were pretty amazing. We know that the first time he had come to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, back in chapter two and three of this gospel. We know that many believed in his name, right, because of the signs that he performed. Those signs are not elucidated, not described and identified by John. But there were lots of them. We learned the same thing in chapter four when the when the uh, folks in Galilee also knew about the, the miracles that he'd performed in Jerusalem. But at that time, the people in Jerusalem just they believed in him as a miracle worker. They didn't remember. They didn't believe in him yet as the Christ, as the Messiah. And then and then in chapter five, at the second time he was in Jerusalem, that, that, that feast, it wasn't named. People speculate, but but John doesn't tell us what feast that is. And that was when he miraculously healed a man who had been ill, paralyzed for 38 years. And, of course, that was the healing that really set things off in, in terms of the reaction, the, the hostile, negative, hateful reaction of the leadership um, and the ruling class towards him. Because they, you know, they, they said it was because he healed on the Sabbath and because he was making himself equal with God. It was also because the, he was a threat. To their rulership. He was a threat to their authority. And that's what really made them want to kill him. All right, back in John chapter 7, verse 25. John 7, 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, 
is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly. And they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. I love it how people who are totally wrong on a, on a, on a principle are sometimes the most bold in stating it. You see people who, uh, who are saying something that's not in the scriptures at all. But boy, what they're going to hang their hat on that and argue about it, you know. And it's a similar thing here. We're going to see that whatever they were saying about the Messiah here it didn't come from the Bible, okay? It came from somewhere else. In any event, they were really surprised that he was here, that he was in Jerusalem, and most of all, that he was speaking out publicly in the temple. I mean, the temple was the was the center of the 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 the, the authority of the of the. Pharisees and the high priests, the center of worship. He had, he, had, he had already said, I don't know if they knew about this, but remember, he'd already said that the time is coming and is already here when people will no longer worship in the temple, but in spirit and in truth. So in a lot of respects, he was, you know, he was knocking over the tables of their belief system in a sense, or at least their, their structure of their religion. But he's there and he's speaking publicly. I mean, In a sense, it would be like public enemy number one marching down to the headquarters of the FBI in Washington, D.C. and starting to talk and preach outside about his movement. You know, I mean, it's like, wow, that was pretty bold. I mean, and that's what they were really saying. They were saying, you know what? All right. Now we are totally we don't get it. We are totally confused about what's going on now. I mean, isn't this the man that has the price on his head already? Yet here he is. He's here. He's not trying to hide, as you or I would, from the officials. And not only that, but he's in a public forum and he's speaking out. And he's continuing to say some of these things that have already gotten him into trouble. That was a big surprise. How could he be so bold as to show up here and continue to teach what he's teaching? But there was something else that made them more confused and made them even more surprised. And that was that the rulers didn't stop him from speaking. You would have expected that here he, he'd come into their turf he's speaking he's teaching it's during the festival the feast he didn't really come for the feast he's on his own teaching you would think that the pharisees and the leaders would put a stop to that as a matter of fact you, this would have been a perfect time for them to have actually seized him they would have great reason in their mind and probably in most of the people's mind for doing it during the feast he's teaching false teaching whatever they wanted to say but they didn't they held back They didn't say a word. They let him go on. That was very confusing to the people. It it added to their confusion about who is this this Jesus? Could he be the Christ? And that's what was happening. They were wondering. They were were starting to put things together in their mind and saying, well, wait a minute. We've seen the miracles. And now we see the rulers aren't touching him. They're letting him go on. I wonder if they now have the evidence that have convinced them that he's the Messiah. That was their first thought. Could that be true? Could the rulers have changed their mind about it? And they weren't privy to all the private conversations, obviously, of, of the Pharisees and the scribes and the high priests and so forth. But then they thought about it a little more. And to them, they're like, no, that doesn't make any sense either. Now, here's the thing about what happened. Gonna, the reason they're going to say it doesn't make sense is they're going to pull from their data bank of what they thought the Messiah should be and line it up with with. Man, and, uh, can't be. Now we, of course, know he is the Messiah. So this, uh, 
there's a with a flaw in the ointment. What's the bank? Where did they draw from to get the information that said, well, this is who the Messiah is supposed to be. This guy doesn't match up to that. He can't be the Messiah. And the answer is from their traditions, from their myths, as it were, from their from their tales that they told. And um, and by the way, this would continue continue to be. Um, as it were, the, the strategy, if I could put it that way, or the big, huge barrier that would continue to exist between the Jewish people and Jesus the Messiah. There, there would always be stories. There would always be revisions. There would always be, for example, you'd look at Isaiah chapter 53, and it screams Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And yet what happened, they came up with stories and myths and so forth to say this really isn't him. Don't don't matter of fact today in most in most uh, synagogues, they will never even turn to that section of the Bible, for example. Um, uh, so so that another another example is after Jesus rose from the dead. They immediately concocted the story that his disciples came in the middle of the night and seized the body, which was the most un- impossible thing that could have possibly happened, by the way. One of the things that proves that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is the fact that that his tomb was the most well-guarded tomb maybe ever. All right. And you had you had all these you had these Roman soldiers on guard and you had the um, the stone on, on the tomb was sealed and just so many things that it, 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 it defied any expectation and reason that that would occur. And yet they did. They told that. Well, it was a similar thing going on with the Messiah. They had their own traditions, their own opinions. And it's no different today. It's no different today. Everybody's got an opinion about Jesus. I, it, it, it amazes me that this has even entered into the political scene in the United States of America, that you have all these divisions politically and everybody's got their Jesus. Right. You know, this. Well, you know, and I don't want to get into political details, but you probably have seen some of this. They, you know, and so so everyone has their own viewpoint, their own opinion about who this Jesus is. You can't avoid him, right? especially anywhere where he's being preached. You can't avoid him. The Bible is the best selling book in the world still. Right. So what happens? What's what what strategy is Satan going to use? Let's come up with all, all different viewpoints about who he is. Right. Why Paul warns the Christians in Second Corinthians about there'll be those who come on the scene. that will have another Jesus, another gospel. Another spirit going on today. It was going on back then. Their Messiah in their mind was going to be a conqueror, but also that and they thought everybody knew this. Right. That when the Messiah came, he will appear from nowhere. That his origin would be a mystery. They wouldn't know where he was born and so forth. But that wasn't what the scriptures said. The scriptures are very clear in the Old Testament. This is why we're going to spend some time on this subject next Sunday. On, on how the Messiah is picture testament, who he is. And, and we're going to see that Jesus, after he's risen from the dead, puts a line in the stand and says, listen, I'm going to show you all the places in the Old Testament, in the Torah, and in the Psalms, and in the prophets that were speaking of me and how how they said that Jesus, that the Messiah, had to die and rise, and rise again. So there's no question that they had the information, the truth, about the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. And yet, again, that was covered over, papered over by these, these traditions, these opinions, and so forth. That's confusing. You know, I'd say, I'd say probably about 80% of 
my calling is to deal with that stuff. That, that the wrong perceptions that people have about Jesus, about the Bible, about salvation. Where did that come from? You know, where did that come from? Well, it, you know, it's a it's a it's a question that we automatically correctly go back and say, well, God has an enemy, his name Satan. And that is all true. And at the same time, it's just it's mind boggling, especially when it's happening with Christians. And and believe me, it is happening with Christians in a big way. Not only here, but around the world, I wonder to myself, why is it that some of the most heretical offshoots of, quote, Christianity are the ones that sometimes make the biggest headway in their evangelistic pursuits in other countries? I mean, talk to Kingsley sometime about the hornet's nest of Pentecostalism that are in the countries where he goes to. Why is that? You know, to me, it's a it's a puzzle, but it's not really a puzzle because I know what the word of God has to say. That there will be, as Paul said, there will be some that will rise up from among your own members, teaching heretical things. Um, but it's still very, very shocking to me. You know, I was talking to Rory Clark the other day, Pastor Clark, my good friend, and we were talking about that. How, by gosh, you know, well, he's like sixty-five, I'm sixty-one, and you know, and we're saying, you know what, nothing's going to shock us anymore. We're seasoned, you know. And then, wouldn't you know, something happens, and <laughs> we're shocked again at how that could happen. Anyway. Um, that's the that's what's wrong with traditions and false teaching. It does really seep into and, and kind of destroy the souls of a lot of people. To the point where they thought they knew it all. They thought that they knew more than Jesus about who Jesus is. If you think about it, it's kind of crazy. But we know where this man comes from. Really? Do you? I mean, that's Jesus' response. It's interesting that in, um, in, in verse, uh, let me get my bearings again. Because I'm not looking at my notes again. Um, yeah, in verse 28, Jesus responds now. This is where he, he responds to this confusion and this discussion about him as the Christ and so forth. And, and Jesus cries out in the temple teaching. He's still teaching and he's saying, you both know me and know where I'm from. By the way, he's saying this in a, in a sarcastic way. In other words, it'd be more like you both know me and know where I'm from. Almost like a question, right? And he said, I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true and you don't know him. So if you think about it, and then he goes in verse 29, I know him because I am from him. You know where I come from? Well, I come from him. That's what he's saying. And he sent me. So they, they thought they knew where he was from. They thought they knew. <laughs> again, you know, uh, uh, I spent a lot of time again. I don't. I don't want to, you know, bore you with the details of my life, but as a calling, as a pastor, people who think they know. And boy, do they ever. I mean, I, I, I've had people that I've tried to use the scriptures on for years about a particular point, And they, they think they know it better than I do. And I'm not pointing to me other than the fact that you might think that somebody who, is, who has been called and has been more or less faithful to studying and preaching the, the scriptures for a long time might actually know something about the scriptures. But in any event, man, people can get stuck on what they think they know, and they're, they're totally convinced it's true. After all, he came from Galilee. Everybody knew that. Talk to the Galileans themselves. They're here. They'll tell you. They even know his parents. I mean, come on. The, 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 we know that the Messiah is going to come out of nowhere, and he's going to be a mystery, and his origins will be secret. We know his parents, this guy. can't be the Messiah. As a matter of fact, his brothers 
They're here. They came down with the other Galileans to their feast. Talk to them. This guy can't be the Messiah. For not only to mention the ladies from Galilee. You know, what did Nathaniel say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? They thought they knew. It's funny. Because, we see, see, the great thing about being a Christian now is we look back on that, and we have all the information, don't we? We know really where he's from. We know, for example, that he was born in Bethlehem, even though many didn't know that. It's kind of shocking there, too, because Bethlehem's not that far, by the way, from Jerusalem. And you had this amazing miracle. You had King Herod, who was freaking out because here is this baby born in Bethlehem, the exact place where the Messiah is going to come from. So you got to wonder there, too, what happened to that information? In any event, they thought they knew. But here's the thing. They thought they knew where he came from. He's from Galilee. We know his, the Galileans know his parents. They know his brothers. They knew everything except the most important thing. <laughs> you see, the mo- there's the most important thing about where he came from. It's the only thing that mattered, actually, and that about who he is and where, he, especially where he came from. And they had no clue. They were totally ignorant. And they had no excuse because Jesus told them again and again and again where he really came from. This gospel begins by having the word with God before there was any time. That's where he came from. Jesus would say again and again, I'm from above. I came from heaven. I came down to earth. If they had been listening or maybe more accurately believing they would have known where he really came from and never would have said something like this about him. I mean, I mean, especially his being in Galilee, when you think about it, when, when, when he was born in the right place, Bethlehem, where he came from heaven, and they wanted to focus on really the least important fact about where he came from. All right. Look at verse 28. And Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I came from (laughs) and I have not come from myself but he who sent me is true whom you do not know I know him because I am from him and he sent me where did you come from 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 God the father I'm here you say because he sent me that's where I came from here he's continuing to teach he totally sees the irony and the foolishness of what they're saying. You think you know me and where I come from? Yes, I have lived in Galilee for a while, but that is not where I am from. I can relate. You know, I mean, I've been in a lot of places in this world, in this country, you know, moving and so forth. I may have, I stayed in St. Louis for six months, but that wasn't where I was from, right? Um, I'm here in Florida, but that's not where I'm from. You know, I've been here for 10 years and people might say, we know where he's from. He's from, you know, Florida. But actually, you know, I, there was somewhere else where I started. And this is the same thing with Jesus. He lived in Galilee for a time, but that's not where he's from. And they, they, he had already told them where he's from. They refused to believe it. And it's kind of real simple. Where's he from? Heaven. That's where he's from, right? He's the son of God whom God sent from heaven to earth. He has always existed. He he would say things. He's already said about Moses. He says, you know what? If you believe Moses, you would believe that who I am, who I am, because he wrote about me. Goes all the way back to Moses. Later on, he's going to go farther back. He's going to Abraham. 
the, the first, you know, Hebrew. And he's going to say, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And before Abraham was, I am. He made no bones about the fact that he that he preexisted everybody and that he came from heaven. He was going to go back to heaven. His father's in heaven. He said it over and over and over again to the point where you might you might when you're reading through it, you're like, I know already. Jesus, I know he came from heaven. You're, you're, and you got to wonder why, why do you keep repeating it? And the answer is, well, two answers. One, they didn't believe it. And number two, he wanted to give them every opportunity because it was the most important thing that the Jews needed to believe. I mean, before he died, of course, they needed to believe that he's from God. He is who he says he is. He's the Messiah. He's the son of God. And when somebody has a hard time or won't or refuses to believe, there's only one strategy if you want to get through to them. And it's repeat something simple. That's why at the end of every service, I try anyway, to kind of simply repeat the gospel. You, I'm sure a lot of you are saying by now, hey, I know that. You don't have to tell me anymore. OK, humor me. Humor me, because because you'll be in situations where you'll be moved, you know, and, and, and emotional and and then you're going to need something reliable. You can just wake up in the morning like an attorney slept too late. He gets into the courtroom and then he's like this and he wakes up and he says, I object. You, know, you got to have that. You're going to be second nature. Right. That's why he kept repeating himself. I am from heaven. I was with my father from heaven in heaven. Moses wrote about me. I've already told you that. You know why I'm here? You know where I came from? You know why I'm here today? Not because I was in Galilee. It's because my father in heaven sent me here. That's why. And he knew it. And see, it's gotta, I, I cannot even begin to imagine being Jesus. In a sense that he, he knows who he is. He knows where he's from. He knows that he is the Messiah. Um who appointed by God, all right, he is God, but also in his humanity. He knows he's the one who will one day rescue the remnant of Israel and bring them into the kingdom. He knows he's the one who will die for the sins of the world. He knows he is the he is the fulfillment of all the promises that were made to the people that he's talking to. So 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 he's and he's not going to be moved from that. A lot of times you wonder how can he be so stalwart? It's real simple. When you you know the truth when you are the truth and you're sure about who you why you're there, who you are. Nothing's going to move you off that truth. Nothing. And that's why he kept he kept standing firm, telling them over and over again. I'm here because my father sent me. God is my father. Everything that he says is true. That's why you've indicted yourselves, he's saying, because he said these things. Moses wrote about me. Moses said, you know what? There'll be a prophet that comes after me like me. And again, the stories, the twisting, the fact of the matter is, you know what made Moses unique as a prophet? He spoke directly to God again and again and again. No prophet after that had those kind of visitations from God. None of them until Jesus. So he he was the fulfillment of the scriptures. Everything that God says is perfect. Everything he does is perfect. They should have known that. And if they had known that, they would have heard his words and seen how he'd operated and realized that this is the fulfillment, this person, Jesus Christ. So what's the problem? You know what their problem is? They don't really know God. See, see, see they wanted to fight about, about Jesus, and well, they should. 
But the problem had its roots in the fact that they weren't even anyone like who they thought they were. They thought they were God's chosen people. Still, they prided themselves on Abraham and his relationship with the Lord. And yet they didn't know the first thing about God. These people. Oh, Abraham did. David did. These people didn't. They had no idea the God that they were thinking that they were worshiping, who he really is. They don't really know him at all. They don't know the real God. They never would have come up with all these rules and regulations and putting these burdens on people and all, all these lies about the Messiah and all the things that we're observing here, the hatred that they had, the fact that if you look back, they, they, they stoned the prophets that the Lord sent. This is nothing new. Okay? They don't know God. And now they have absolutely no excuse because God in the flesh is standing with them, speaking to them, and they didn't recognize him. That couldn't have happened if they knew God. They didn't know God. And you know what? They never would. These, these people. Oh, the, that third group will, right? They will believe in Christ. Remember the three groups today, the ones that were skeptical, the ones that were hostile, and the ones that ended up believing in him. Well, see, that's the thing. The, just write it down. This is a simple statement. They couldn't know, no one can know who God really is until they believe in the one God sent. Let me say that again. They couldn't really know who God really is, ultimately is, until they believed in the one God sent. Now you might say, well, didn't before they, he sent Jesus, didn't they know him? To, to a certain extent, yes. But then God said, I'm going to complete my revelation about who I am by sending my one and only son who was going to be the embodiment of who I am. Right. The exact representation of my nature is the way that the writer of Hebrews put it. And so he's God in the flesh. He, you know, he, in him dwells everything that who God is. That's his final revelation, as it were. His, his very son. And if they didn't recognize him, they never really knew God anyway. And it's the same thing today. People don't recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and their savior. They don't know the first thing about who God is, regardless of their traditions, their religion, what have you, their philosophy. If they don't believe in God's son as the one who came from, from, came from heaven, died for the sins of the world, was raised from the dead, and all the grace and the love that's in that act, they don't know the first thing about God. Because if you don't know that God is gracious, you don't know the first thing about God. And they refused to believe in the one person that would allow them to understand who God really is. He's more than a messenger. They kept saying, is this the prophet? Well, the answer is, yeah. But that's only part of who he is, right? He's more than a messenger. I mean, Isaiah was studying now on Thursdays. He was a messenger. He faithfully communicated what God wanted the people to know. Jesus communicated himself as the one whom they needed to know to know God. Uh, let's look at Hebrews now. Please go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the very beginning of the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews 1, chapter 3, chapter, three chapter, chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. I think I'm getting adult onset dyslexia. I don't know if that's a real thing. Is it? Yeah. 
Oh, anyway. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, God's son, God in the flesh. Notice, remarkable statement here, the truth. He, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God. Think about that. If you want to know the the, the most radiant reality of God's glory, you know, as glorious as those angels were on the day that Jesus was born, there's something, there's someone. A hundred million times more glorious. You think about you think about Moses and the mountain and, and the vision he had of the Lord. There's something many, many times more glorious than that. It's a person. Jesus Christ is the flashing forth of the glory of God. And notice further, he's the exact representation of his nature. Notice what that says. The exact representation of his nature. Whose nature? God's nature. People want to say, well, the the Bible doesn't say that Jesus is God. No, or even better. You know what the, the usual trick is? Jesus never said he was God. You know? Well, of course, you know, that, that shows that anyone who would make that statement is totally ignorant of the scriptures. And they've only gone into the scriptures to try to disprove who Jesus is. All right? And by the way, if, if you have that approach, God, good luck to you. All right? Because you know what? You're going to never see beyond that. Why? Because you, because you need the Holy Spirit's guidance to actually really see who Jesus is. You know, that's why the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's the Holy Spirit. I mean, we, too, would have trouble with it. As long as we listen to, you know, the fleshly side, the worldly side of things, you know, trying to be philosophical and scholarly, we're never going to get it. Okay, we're never going to get it. But it's but it's a fact. Jesus said he was God many times. The Bible says it many times. And it's and it's amazing how, in a sense, the the the, the writers who had the inspiration from the the Holy Spirit, you know, struggle to say it all the ways that it needs to be said, you know, like this. Radiant, how, how better can you describe the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his nature, God's nature, God's glory? It's Jesus, more than a messenger. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Who Jesus is revealed who God is first and foremost yes his message his words revealed who God is but the most potent the, the centerpiece was who he is and not only that but God sent him you know you think well, why do you keep saying that the father sent me the father sent me the father sent me well, one of the things is is that hopefully at a certain point in time, realizes yes God sent him but why why did God send him well, we know in John 3, 16, and in fact, Nicodemus should have known, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So whoever believes in him will never perish, but have eternal life. See, the reason why God sent Jesus reveals who God is. That read Romans 3, 21 to 26. God remains just and the justifier of sinful, godless person who believes in Christ. That's who God is. Salvation by grace through faith. That's who God is. So the reason why he sends Jesus reveals who God is. Notice it all centers around Jesus. His identity, his work, his relationship with his father. That God is gracious and forgiving. That God loves the world, all people. That he loves the world 
way more than you or I, or especially the Jews, could ever imagine. Yes, this is this is his son, and he sent him to die for you. And Jesus is the truth. He's the way, salvation, and he's also the truth. He's been the truth since eternity past. In the beginning was the word, the truth. The word was with God and the word was God. He has been the truth and God's word from the beginning that was before any beginning that anybody ever could imagine on earth. And then by God's decree, please turn to John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14, because God had a plan. God had a decree and he set up before the world began. And at a point in time, his, his decree brought forth Jesus. And who is he? Look at John chapter 1, verse 14. The word from all of eternity, the, the, every, everything that God ever wanted people to know about himself, the word, how did he get it done? Became flesh. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's who God is. He's full of grace, full of truth. John testified about Jesus and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I pointed this out before. John was older than Jesus. Just check out the Gospel of Luke. John's older than Jesus. Not only by a few months, but he certainly... Chronologically, Jesus didn't come before John. What does that mean? He existed forever as the word in, in heaven. For as his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. Notice the emphasis on grace here. But the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And, and you know this, this statement in verse 17 is a key, key frame a frame for understanding the gospel of John. Because so much of the conflict here is between people's wrong view of the law of Moses and the grace and truth that Jesus is revealing. God seeks worshipers who worship in spirit, him in spirit and in truth. And, 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 and Jesus is God's gracious gift, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 18, no one has seen God the Father in heaven, by the way, at any time. But now the only begotten God, Jesus, who says that the Bible never says Jesus is God? The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father now, he has explained him. Think about it. He explains God. And again, not first and foremost by what he says, but by who he is. If they understood who God was, they would have realized this about Jesus. And unfortunately, though, these people didn't know the first thing about God. Why? Very simple. They didn't recognize God's son when he came to them. Think about that for a minute. I mean, even on the human level. If you if, if somebody says, you know what, I know so and so. And then, then his very son shows up, and you have no idea who he is. You got to wonder: Do you really know this guy? If you don't even know his son, this is—it's the same thing on a more, you know, 
powerful level, though, about they, they didn't if they had known. I keep repeating this. If they had known who God, the God of their Old Testament was, they would have welcomed worshipped Jesus when he came. But they didn't know the first thing about their God because they didn't even recognize God's very son when he came to them. Look, let's go back to verse 10. This one section says it all. And I realized that the people in Jesus' time didn't get to read John's words. Okay. But it didn't matter because he's telling the truth about who Jesus is, and they should have known. Look at John chapter 1, verse 10. I mean, John the Baptist certainly laid this out, for example. Jesus himself laid it out. His disciples right away. I mean, it always amazes me. At first, it was kind of a puzzle. It seemed not real when Jesus comes on the scene. You know, you think about what was But they immediately responded to him. God in the flesh, and they knew it. All right, John one ten. He was in the world. Jesus, now the Son of God, the Word made flesh, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. That was the first shock, right? The world was made by him, and they didn't know him. But then, even more shocking, verse eleven. He came to his own, the chosen people, the Jews, and those who were his own did not receive him. That's the verdict. See, that's the thing. We already know in chapter one, in a sense, how this is going to turn out. We already know that Jesus is going to have these conflicts. They're going to build. They're not going to receive him. We know it. And yet, of course, we, we, we are, we are actually gifted with John's account of things so we can see more and more about the nature of the, of the, of the conflict and how it represents a big, big thing about God's plan. In any event, those who were his own, the Jews, did not receive him. But as many as received him. Remember, we got three groups today. We got those who were skeptical, those who hated him, and those who ended up believing in him. There were some who received, by the way, they were the common people. Right? They were the common people. You know, it, it, you know when Jesus said it's, it's harder for rich men it's it's what did he say? It's easier for a rich man to go through the island of the it's easier for a camel to go through the I'll get this eventually. That's a little older. Easier for a rich or a camel to go through the an eye of the needle than for a rich man to be saved, basically. And you know, we say, well, you know, but there's a truth to that in the sense that those who have all of life's advantages find it really hard to humble themselves to say they need a savior. The common people have many fewer barriers to it. They're not arrogant. Well, some of them are, but but some of them aren't, right? Um, they have common sense and and they're more open. And I'm not saying this to indict powerful people, I guess, but but it was a fact. It's just a fact that the common people welcomed him, whereas the leadership didn't. Again, verse eleven, uh, verse twelve. But as many as received him, some would. To them, he gave the right to become children of God. It's so interesting. They questioned his authority. But he even had the authority to, to allow people to become children of God, to bring people to God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
There's, there's people, the world didn't know him. His own people, as represented by the authorities and leaders and rulers, didn't receive him. But there are some who would. To them, he gave the right to become children of God. All right, let's go back to our passage this morning. And let's go to John chapter 7, verse 30. John 7, 30. So they were seeking to seize him. By the way, they is a new group. Is a new group. This is group number two. They were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him. There's group number three. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has. Will he? Again, here we have our second people in the audience with Jesus that day, the haters in verse 30, again, these are the leaders, the rulers, the authorities. It's funny, the, the leaders, the rulers, and the authorities in the heavenly places hate them. And many of the rulers and authorities in the, in the human realm hate them too. But then verse 31, the third group, they were the believers. In verse 31, many in the crowd. 30, I love verse 30. I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of a threatening verse but I love it look, look at that the high priests the Pharisees were seeking to seize him and yet no man even laid his hand on him why? because his hour had not yet come see this explains the confusion that they had why aren't the rulers arresting him Very simple. And you know, I, I have when I have an opportunity to just meditate on this verse, I end up having a great time just worshiping and honoring God. Here we have enraged people, powerful people, rulers, indignant, fearful. They wanted nothing better than to take this man out. But they couldn't. They couldn't do it. Something was preventing them. It was the same something that, 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 that prevented Daniel's three friends in the fire from perishing. Something prevented that from happening. Something prevented the Red Sea from destroying the Jewish people. Something did, right? Here, something was preventing the people that hated Jesus from even laying a hand on him. What was it? I call it today a spiritual brick wall. They ran right into it again and again. What was it? What was it? It's very simple. It's the sovereignty and omnipotence of God. God sets something out. Power that it comes about. That's what they ran into. No, his time hasn't come. You're not going to lay a hand on him. By the way, that's the same sovereignty. God's in command. He has a plan. All things working together for good. The same omnipotence. That now works all things together for good in our lives. In our lives. Nobody is going to lay a hand on us until the hour that God says, if at all, until the hour that God says, okay, now is the time for that to happen. So we, we ought to live boldly and victoriously, as Romans 5 t- teaches us to do. 
It's not Jesus' time to die yet here, and no amount of scheming or officers or soldiers could do a thing to change it. Again, think of the omnipotence of God. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when it wasn't quite time for the soldiers to lay a hand on Jesus, Jesus spoke those words. He and and a whole, probably 500 soldiers were laid on the ground. That's a great picture of the authority and sovereignty of God. No amount of scheming, no number of officers or soldiers can do a thing to change it. One day, his hour would come. Gospel of John is leading to that. There's all the way until chapter 12, it says, my hour is not come. My hour is not yet arrived. All of a sudden, in chapter 12, everything, my hour has arrived. It would arrive. And it's what, when, according to God's plan, according to what he has foreordained would happen. And I want to end today in a passage from the book of Acts. So marvelous on the subject of God's plan. What God knew, his power. Please turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. We're going to now see Peter. Peter witnessed all of these events. Peter went through his trials and tribulations. He had a moment of weakness. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. A moment, he had a time when he, when he denied the Lord. You should reflect on that. Why do I say that? Well, because a lot of times, you know, we think we're super Christians and somehow that we we would never, we would never turn our back on the Lord. You know, well, I got to tell you something. That's exactly what Peter said about three hours before he turned his back on the Lord. So and that, that's both a, a humbling thing and a comforting thing. Because one day you may find yourself in one of those situations and you're weak and you might say, you know, I'm a horrible person. <laughs> well, yeah, you are. But that's besides the point. <laughs> the point is that, you know what? Christ is forgiven. God is gracious. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter, talking to the men of Israel, they're gathered on the Feast of Pentecost. Of course, miraculous things happen, right? They were all, the, 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 the apostles who were there with Peter that day, boldly preaching, were speaking to these people. that They were the diaspora, by the way, in front of them. If you read Acts 20, chapter 2, you'll see these people came from all kinds of places in the Roman Empire. And all different languages, and yet by a miracle, here are these, these simple, common people, fishermen, speaking in all these different languages. That's pretty miraculous. Then Peter teaches, which was the most important thing. Sure, you can have a sign, but the teaching, the truth, the message. Look, Acts 2.22, men of Israel, listen to these words. By the way, how did the gospel proceed according to Romans chapter 1? To the Jew first. And then to the Gentiles, we see it. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man, notice this, attested to you, who, men of Israel, by God, how? With miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. John records them, the miracles. Matthew does, Mark, Luke. Why, were they all, why, would he, why was he doing all of this to the men of Israel? Well, Paul will tell us later, right? Jews require signs. So guess what God did? He gave it to them. Greeks seek for wisdom. Guess what? Paul gave it to him, and he gave it to him in the way which he said, your wisdom is nothing, right? The, 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 the smallest part of the wisdom of God is greater than any wisdom in this world. In any event, men of Israel, listen to these words. 
Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the what? Predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God had set it out in stone, and there's nothing anyone's going to do until his, Jesus' hour came. Predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, Romans, and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him, Jesus, to be held in its power. And you can kind of hear the people now saying, how are we supposed to know? Right? How are we supposed to know this is going to happen? I'll tell you why. Because now Peter is going to quote from Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is Old Testament scriptures. Anybody who knew this Old Testament knew Psalm 16. When Jesus said that, you know, the, the Psalm spoke of him, and not only that, but how he had to die and rise again. See, that's the Messiah first, had to die and rise again. You might say, well, gee, I don't know. How did they know that? They wouldn't have known that. They thought this and that, high ruler. Well, you see, those were the myths. Those were the traditions. That wasn't the truth. This is the truth. Psalm 16 is the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Why? Because that's what David says. David, who wrote Psalm 16, says of him, who? Jesus Christ. I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. This is Jesus speaking now. For he, therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. And moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Because you, this is Jesus talking to his father, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He was in the tomb three days, not four. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter explains. He's explaining Old Testament scriptures, Psalm chapter 16. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. He did not rise from the dead. In other words, this couldn't be about David himself. <clears throat> and so, verse 30, because he, David, was a prophet, and he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. By the way, that's Old Testament. That's Psalm 132, verse 11. David was a prophet, and he knew that God had sworn to him, David, with an oath to seat one of David's descendants on his throne. Look at verse 31. He, David, Old Testament hero to the Jews. He looked ahead and he spoke of what? The resurrection of the Christ. You want to tell me that the resurrection of Christ is in the Old Testament scriptures? I, I beg to differ. Psalm 132.11. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. In other words, David knew it. Peter's teaching him resurrection of Christ. This Jesus God raised up again to which we, Jesus' disciples are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted, Jesus, to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit, John's going to tell us, is not released until Jesus sends into heaven. He poured forth that which you both see and hear as a manifestation of the Spirit when they spoke in all those languages. Verse 34, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, 
But David himself says, Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, he's talking about Jesus, the Father saying to Jesus, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, not only the resurrection, not only the ascension, but also what we call the session of Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, was also predicted, documented in the Hebrew Scriptures. Verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What a marvelous way to end today. You want to know why? Because next Sunday, we're going to do a short study on the Messiah in the Old Testament scriptures. And you've had a little taste of it today. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, for inspiring us with the power of your word, the power of your, of your son, the person Jesus Christ, the power of Old Testament scriptures to be so clear in predicting the Messiah coming and how it would happen and how he would die and rise from the dead. Yes, uh, we would we would do our utmost in, in preaching the gospel ourselves so that there would be people who would not be the first group, merely skeptics, definitely not be in the second group, hostile to your sin, but be in the third group. And in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right. Once again, a reminder, Thanksgiving schedule, no services on that Thursday or Sunday. Remember that um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we ended up with that. That third group, we're going to pick up with them next Sunday. The one who ended up believing in him. As we, as, we, as we now know, seen through the writings of the New Testament, the, the, the truth about who Jesus is as the Savior, it was in the Old Testament scriptures as well, that we're all sinners, that we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins, that up until the very moment that we believe in Jesus, we are, we are ungodly and unrighteous. And yet that's who God gave his son to die for. Jesus died on the cross, was buried and was raised from the dead. And whoever believes in this Jesus, Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sins, was buried and was raised from the dead, will never, ever perish, but will live forever, will have eternal life. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God justifies the ungodly, the godly, not, not the elect, as you know, as the ungodly. God says, you're ungodly. You believe in my son. I declare you righteous. That's the miracle of the gospel, the power of the word of God, the word of the cross. All right. A little reminder to um, our giving policy. You know that we don't we don't require anything in the, in the way of tithing or pledges or anything like that. But but the principle, again, is giving with a glad heart. What what makes us have a glad heart? Well, two things. One is the, the truth of how we've been set free. And, and the incredible riches that we have of the truth that's in God's word and how they've been applied to us as believers and how we have an inheritance and how all things are working together for good and that we can come to the scriptures again and again and again and be built up and have more insights into who God is and who Jesus is. There's gratitude there. But you know what, too? On a practical level, when we see that God, what God, how God takes care of us and graces us out in many ways, 
we then have we then and this is just the way it works is to work in, in the hearts of normal Christian life is that then we have a sense of gratitude that overflows and says, well, now we can too be like our father and, and be gracious in giving also. And it's only on that basis that we would we would ever expect you to give to us or to any other um, any other ministry or people, needy people, maybe people in our congregation. Never feel it's a, it's a duty. Always feel that it's it's a pleasure. It's a matter of us being as gracious, not as, but gracious like our father. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you once again. Thank you for everything that you're doing with our congregation. Thank you for your word, which is living and active and powerful. Thank you for having us still able to gather together. Thank you for helping us to be staying together, helping us to grow, helping us to see more clearly who you are. We ask also, Father, that you give us a nudge, a push to also share all of this with people in our lives who desperately need it. This world desperately needs to hear this good news. We ask this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.